Most leaders know that a key element of building and supporting a diverse workforce is in the hiring process. In this episode, some of the key practices for you to consider in order to attract and retain the candidates you want. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 589. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of us think about what we can do as leaders to be able to put in the right practices and intentions in our organizations to really support inclusion so well. And yet, I know many of us do struggle with that, of what can we do practically that's going to really help us to do a better job at creating organizations that really have the diversity and inclusion and equity that so many of us are seeking. Today, I'm glad to welcome an expert who's going to really help us to look at especially our hiring practices. What can we do more effectively in order to support inclusion in our organizations? I'm pleased to introduce Ruchika Tol to you. She is the founder of Candor, a global inclusion strategy firm. She is a regular contributor to the New York Times and Harvard Business Review. As a keynote speaker, Ruchika has addressed organizations like NASA, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the United States Congress. Ruchika is the author of The Diversity Advantage, Fixing Gender Inequality in the Workplace, and most recently, Inclusion on Purpose, an Intersectional Approach to Creating a Culture of Belonging at Work. She is on the Thinkers 50 radar list and was named as one of Hive Learning's most influential DNI professionals for the past two years. Ruchika, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Dave, thank you so much for having me here. I uh, have been hearing about your work over the last year. Uh, Jody Ann Bury was on the show last year uh, on the joint article you both wrote in Harvard Business Review on uh, on imposter syndrome and how we can do better in our workplaces. And there is so there's so many places that we can all nudge ourselves on and even go beyond the nudge and change our practices on in order to support inclusion in our organizations and hiring is not the only place, but it sure isn't an important one to begin with, isn't it? It really is. And I always I always say diversity without inclusion doesn't stick. And we know research backs this up. It's very important to think about how do we create inclusive workplaces where everyone, no matter who they are, can bring their authentic selves and feel valued and welcome. But the way that we really start, the place that many organizations must start is by hiring more intentionally. Because what we're seeing is around the world, dominant group culture people are generally, certainly in leadership positions in organizations. And for us to reach those sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion goals that we have, it is important to really be intentional in hiring more inclusively. And speaking of starting, one of the invitations that you make in the book is when thinking about the hiring process to actually be really transparent from the start to finish of what's involved with the hiring process. Uh, Tell me why that's so critical when thinking about inclusion. Yeah, 
And I'll tell you a little story, if I may, about how I grew up in um, a fairly traditional Indian family in Singapore. Please. I'm the first female member of my family who's completed paid work outside the home, who has a career. And so what that what that has meant is throughout various points in my life, whether it was going through an academic system, whether it was applying for a four-year university, whether it was applying for grad school, and then certainly when it came to job applications, in many ways, I was I was doing those things without complete information. I was doing that without being able to turn to the people I knew closest to me. Certainly, I am very close to my mother and and not have sort of the tools because nobody in my close family had really applied for professional jobs outside the home. And so for me, applying for jobs meant like, what do you wear to an interview? What is that right balance between how much how much emotion do you show? Are, are you supposed to be excited? Are you supposed to be confident? Are you supposed to be humble? What are the rules, right? And so I think sometimes what happens with folks who may have had that runway of perhaps their parents were professionals or they've had a number of people, number of generations be part of the workforce. Perhaps they went to academic institution schools and then later colleges where there was a lot of availability of these resources to coach them through how you apply for jobs. And it's us recognizing that not everyone starts on that same playing field. We like to think that the world is meritocratic. And of course, if someone applies for the job and they don't exactly have exactly, they, neither are they showing the soft skills or maybe they, they don't actually have the checklist that we have in mind, we would be able to see past that. And sometimes we over-index on our belief that we would be fair and good and right in those in those situations. And I think really doing this work well is leaning into the fact that actually we do fall prey to our biases. We do look for sameness. We do pattern match. And as a result, there is that gap between our good intentions and what we say where we believe in diversity, equity, inclusion, we would absolutely consider candidates, no matter if they don't appear in the way that we would imagine that they should or what we think the criteria should be, we would still give folks a chance based on the fact that they have the potential to succeed here. But the reality is most of the time we do fall prey to our biases and we do pattern match for who, who's already there at the organization. One of the invitations you make is to include an authentic equal opportunity statement. And when I read that in the book, I thought, wow, that's a blind spot for me as a straight middle-aged white guy. I notice it when it's there, but I would not probably notice the absence of it. And I'm wondering how critical is that? And when you say an authentic equal opportunity statement, what does that sound like? Mm. That's such a great question, Dave. So what's interesting is research by Textio, which is a Seattle-based, and I'm here in the Seattle area, a Seattle-based organization that really looks at linguistics and how do we how do we write well and how do we use machine learning and AI to do that correctly. So research by Textio essentially found that where there was even a very rudimentary equal opportunity statement in a technology job listing, Candidates of 
all backgrounds, not just necessarily candidates from underrepresented backgrounds were more likely to apply. The best candidates of all identities were likely to apply. So I think that's that's one of those really easy, quote, low-hanging fruit that an, a, a leader trying to create a more inclusive hiring process can look into. Now, I think when I think about the authentic statement that leaders could look into, it really means inviting people who have historically been marginalized, historically been overlooked, right, to apply. Because I think one part of it is, and the way that a lot of the sort of legal definitions of an equal opportunity statement, the way they present is, we will not discriminate based on your identity. Right. But And then an authentic statement is saying, we invite you to apply for this job no matter what your identity is, you will be welcome here. So that subtle approach, that subtle change in approach can really make a big difference, right? One part of it is we will not discriminate you, right? For when you apply here, we will not, you will not experience discrimination. The other part is we are seeking you out and we, we are excited that especially if you're from an underrepresented, underestimated identity, we are seeking you out because we know you're going to make our organization better. So that's a that's a little subtle tweak there that I think, again, can make the biggest difference. And as you're saying that, I think to myself, I, I hadn't thought about that consciously as far as job descriptions uh, that I would read. But now that, like, just hearing you say that out loud, I think, like, like the the power of seeing that in writing, especially mm-hmm. if you're someone who's applying and you are from an underrepresented uh, demographic, and perhaps you know that this firm is not as diverse as uh, you might like it to be, seeing that in writing, uh, that could be the difference maker as to whether or not you decide to apply or pa- pass it over and look somewhere else, right? You're so right. And I again, the research backs this up. Generations coming up after us are very socially minded. They believe in values. They make decisions. They make work decisions and career decisions and job application decisions based on their values. So for an organization to really want to be a more inclusive employer and create a more inclusive hiring process that transparency, this is where we are. This is something we really believe in. We invite you to apply is something that, again, I think would make a big difference. There's so much that language alone here and just what we're writing in a position description can do. And one of the other places that you ask us to look at, and you uh, you write, I'm quoting you in the book now, Refrain from using words in job listings that have been shown to negatively impact women and people from underrepresented groups, as well as discourage them from applying. And I'll read examples of some of the words that you would suggest to avoid in job listings. Rockstar, ninja, hacker, guru, manage, build, aggressive, fearless, independent, analytic, and assertive. And as I think about that list of words... They all land a little differently for me. I know there are some folks in our audience who hear words like that and they're like, ah, like those are the kinds of things like we would describe for the people we're looking for. What's problematic about those those kinds of words? Yeah. And uh, such a great question, Dave, because the reality is we don't want to 
accept this, but words are gendered. There are a lot of words in our language which are gendered. And there are words that explicitly, as many girls are growing up, and then later as women, we're actually explicitly told not to behave in those manners, right? One of those words, are depending on where in the world you grew up, fearless is one of those traits that I've really been taught to associate with masculinity. So don't show that you're fearless, right? And I know the movement is changing and I know there's a lot of work being done to overcome and and reframe these words, whether it's bossy as a leadership trait for girls and later as women. But the reality is many of us have been socialized to reject these words. And I think really deeply about the word analytical, because years ago, I remember someone actually referred me to a technology job, which would really use my skills back then as a journalist and my love for words and stories. And they said, you'd be amazing at this, Ruchika, you should apply. And I looked at the job listing and those words were there, data-driven, analytical, all of those words that I had disassociated myself from. I said, as a, as a woman, as a female as a woman of color, these are words that don't really apply to me. And I did not want to apply for the job. And I remember the person who referred me doubling down and literally saying, Richika, I know these words, maybe you don't see yourself as analytical. Cause I literally said, I don't see myself as analytical. I don't think this is going to be the right job for me. And they said, I, I really encourage you to apply. And I did, and I got the job. And I think what I, what I reflect back on those moments that that was lucky. I was lucky in that moment. But for the majority of us, we would look at a job listing like that. We could be the best candidate for it, but certain words we've been taught that doesn't apply to me and we don't apply. And what's interesting in the research around the language that's been used in job listings is when those tweaks are made to be more inclusive for women applicants to apply, right? Words that, so instead of words like ninja and rockstar, if you use words such as communication and uh, building together and learning and really growth mindset type of words, again, that's from research from Textio. What we find is there's actually a material change in how many women apply, i.e. more women apply, but it actually doesn't impact men from applying. It doesn't mean that now you've, it's not zero sum, right? There's this belief that, okay, if we use these words, men will apply, women won't apply. If we use these words, women will apply, men won't apply. Whereas in, as in actual fact, the research clearly shows that it doesn't make a difference on whether men apply for the job or not, but it actually makes a difference when you use the correct words for women to apply for those jobs. That's what's so cool about the research on this and the looking at this is like we can be really more intentional about our language and we open up the doors for candidates that are underrepresented, but we aren't um, we aren't excluding by changing some of this language. And I just think it's a great invitation for us to look at. And by the way, one of the calls to action I'm going to have from this conversation for all of us is to get the book and specifically to zero in on the few pages here, because there's so many examples of language that a small shift can really make a big difference. And speaking of shifts, uh, another shift, maybe a little bit more involved than language, is thinking about emphasizing skills and experience 
over mm. degrees. And mm. this has been a really interesting trend over the last few years. Um, I know it's not true everywhere, but we've seen some of the biggest organizations, uh, Merck, IBM, Accenture, mm-hmm. UPS, have very publicly and very intentionally moved away in not every role, but many roles of saying that they're is a degree requirement for the role. And there's also an inclusion connection here as well. And that's that's part of what is driving some of these firms to do this. T- tell me more about that. Mm. So research from Harvard Business School of a few years ago, I remember I was actually attending a leadership program there in 2017. And there was brand new research, which found that millions of jobs here in the United States that were being completed today by someone who didn't have a college degree But when those jobs were being advertised, they were listing a college degree requirement. And this was creating a real issue in filling these jobs up. And these were millions of jobs around the country. And so I remember reading that research and feeling it really deeply in my bones because I remember going to college. And again, I I had socioeconomic privilege and I was able to, my parents paid for college for me. They paid for grad school for me. I was able to graduate debt-free, which I know makes me very, very fortunate and privileged. And I'm very open about this. But I remember attending college and meeting so many people, again, especially people from underrepresented backgrounds, especially students of color for whom just getting into college was such a struggle, let alone affording college. And I think this is something that we don't, we don't want to face up to. So bringing this back into the hiring process, there is a way to correct some of those wrongs in us ensuring that rather than only looking at candidates who have a college degree and actually from certain colleges, because let's be real, right? Like we know that certain colleges certainly hold a lot more weight than others, rather than that, looking into skills and traits and what we need for this job to be completed correctly. And actually, a lot of the times, that does not mean a college degree. So it does mean that we got to do, it means that we've got to do that additional work. We've got to get really clear, be very, very sort of transparent, like this is what it actually takes to complete this job. And again, one of the things that I try and encourage in my work is for us to move away from, we've always done it this way, right? Because if you've always done it this way and you've not had a very diverse workforce, and if you're going to continue doing it that way, then you're not going to be able to make change, right? You're just going to do more of the same. So it does require us going the extra mile, being much more intentional. And again, that's where change is made. It's it's potentially a a key leverage point to affect change. And I know that in many organizations, it's standard practice to put the degree requirement on there for full-time positions. And um, and this is something I've changed my mind on, Rajika, in the last 10 years. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, like, should firms default to having a degree requirement for most professional positions, I probably would have said yes. And I, I think it's it's interesting now how many firms are starting to rethink this. And if if you listening or in this place of thinking like, well, we've always done it this way. We've always had degree requirements. I think the push, the invitation here would be some of your competitors are already doing this. So if you're really wanting to attract diverse talent and to look for 
other ways to do that well. I think this is something certainly to look at and consider in your organization. And it does put a little bit more of the onus on the potential employer then to screen, mm-hmm. right? And one of the other places that you invite organizations to do some thinking on is maybe to do something like, um, I think the term used is audition-style challenges for the first round of an interview. Um, What is that, and how does that help as far as being able to attract the right folks, but also being able to screen appropriately? Yeah. One of of those extra miles sort of requirements to really create an inclusive environment is recognize and be, again, open and honest and do the uncomfortable work of recognizing that we do make decisions based on what's the name on the resume, right? So studies around the world, research from Canada, from France, here in the United States, all over the world has found time and again that recognizable Anglo-Saxon names are preferable on a resume and have a have a higher chance of being called back for a job interview and then being offered a job than a equal candidate who has a recognizably Asian or Asian American name, an African American name. I think the study done in France specifically compared identifiably Muslim names from white French Anglo-Saxon names. And so what we find is we have to name these biases. We have to, we have to know that we whether whether you call it unconscious bias, whether we call it bias without the unconscious, the reality is many of us prefer and are drawn to sameness, names that are recognizable to us, names that make us feel comfortable. And so we find a lot of candidates get screened out just at that stage of the resume, right? Where they send in their resume, they have an identifiably non-Anglo-Saxon name like mine, Ruchika Tolshan, and we get rejected. And so what the audition style sort of challenge does is we first, I first recommend where possible, scrub the resume of all identifiers in terms of gender and in terms of race or or ethnicity and any other identifiers that could bias the decision of whether this person could actually move on in the hiring process from resume to interview. And then in the interview process, it's a good idea to have what's called a blind audition. I'm, I, I, I move away from the word blind audition because of ableist language, but really audition in the sense that can you complete tasks which shows us why you'd be the right person for this role rather than let's just ask you questions because so much of the interview process is riddled with bias. Do I like this person? Would it be someone who I'd like to go grab a drink with? Is it someone whom I could imagine being stuck in an airport with? And so and so much of the interview process, because it's based on that, can I have a good conversation with this person? It doesn't necessarily help us figure out, but is this a person who could actually complete the job and do it really well? And an audition style, whatever that task might be, I've seen it. I've seen a number of organizations and companies now pop up that specifically look at tasks for engineers or software engineers or folks in technology, where it's a very specific set of tasks that you need to complete. But you remove all racial and ethnic and gender identifiers, so that truly, again, you start off with a more level playing field when you make that decision. Yeah, there's the tendency for so many of us at a human level to 
when talking with someone in uh, either screening or an initial interview to have the, do I like this person? Would I enjoy working with this person? That kind of um, conscious, maybe even subconscious response. And there's something to say for that for sure. But a lot of times we tend not to think about, okay, what's the what are the skills we're actually screening for and the capacity of the person to perform the job well. And along these lines, I mean, one of the really interesting things that I saw here was we talk so much about culture fit in organizations <laughs> in hiring. And one of the the nudges you give to us is to refrain from asking or having a lot of questions about culture and fit and culture fit. And also, interestingly, of considering avoiding panel interviews as well. Uh, what is it about panel interviews that can be problematic when thinking about inclusion? Mm, I think that, so a couple of things. One is when we do panel style interviews, as the interviewers, we're actually very prone to fall into that same as me bias, right? And often that actually happens where you might catch your colleague's eye, right? And I know now in the in the virtual world, it might be through private Slack channels or private chats where you can you can in real time if if your colleague perhaps has a bias against someone, maybe they're talking about how this person didn't smile enough. And we know women get a lot of this feedback. She didn't smile enough, she didn't seem likable enough, especially. That could actually influence and bias your decision in that moment. And whereas if you were to meet the candidate individually, you would form your own belief and your own sort of opinion about them. And then if you score that separately from the rest of your colleagues, not, not in one where you have a discussion, but more a debrief. Here's what I thought. Here's what I thought. Here's what I thought. All right, now let's talk about what's our group decision. We find that panel interviews can really create and exacerbate bias. So I do recommend moving away from them from that for that reason on the other hand and on the other side of the sort of the what, what i think about it from the person who's being interviewed from their standpoint i have been to panel interviews where because so many organizations today are very homogenous especially when you get to the managerial and leadership level i've walked into panel style interviews where nobody looked like me Right. And the number one sign I got in that moment was, oh my goodness, I feel unwelcome. I feel like I'm completely different. I feel like I won't belong here. And then being reminded that in sort of as four people or five people are sitting in a sort of panel looking at me in many ways, grilling me, that kind of reminded me like, oh, wow, I don't belong here. And that also prevented me from bringing my A game to that interview. So I think doing away with panel interviews from both perspectives, whether it's better hiring outcomes and more diversity in the hiring outcomes you have as an employer and as the interviewer, as well as as the interviewee, I think there's benefits for both. It's, it's, such, a, it's such an important consideration because I think a lot of times we think, okay, if we get as many different kinds of people in the room mm -hmm. together, that that's the best way for us to have to get diverse perspective and and yet like we sometimes don't think about like the cultural like how we show up and and then of course um I'm thinking my my wife is a university professor and she also has a podcast and she had a guest on recently that was um a woman of color talking about 
the also some of the problematic things that come with panels and committees of if you're the person of color in a department or an organization, you inevitably get asked to be on every committee uh, mm-hmm. because well-intended organizations want to have diversity on every committee and an organization that doesn't represent that. Well, all of a sudden that that person, whoever that is, gets asked and is doing additional work. And there's there's it's it's well-intended, but there's a lot of baggage that comes with it that I don't think we always think through when we're thinking about how do we really get a little bit more objective perspective when we're talking to someone and bringing them to the organization. That's right. And I think even when I think back to those interviews where I've been in panel interview styles, and there was a lot of, essentially, everyone was homogenous, and I was the different, I was the other. I think back to times where when I felt comfortable is when I've sat down and had an interview and and the interviewer talked about for us culture our our culture is this certain way and we don't have the type of diversity we want and I'm going to be really honest with you and 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 here are the things that we're doing to ensure that our culture is much more inclusive here are some of the areas of growth for us what do you think what could we do to ensure that this is a place that would feel great for you to work at. And I think these are the ways we forget in the interview process. So much of it is, and at the end of the day, it is about power, right? The employer has the power. The interviewee doesn't have the same amount of power. And we that's the way interviews have been structured. Where in actual fact, what if we could reimagine and redesign the process where it truly is a mutually beneficial sort of process, right? It's one where I can come in and I can say, here's what I think could really help this organization be more diverse, be more inclusive. Here are the things that matter to me. And I want to bring these ideas to the table. And the employer thinks, wow, like these are things that would really benefit us. This could be something that could be super, super transformative for us. So let us ensure that this person is also having a good experience through the interview process. I remember years ago, I did a, I did an interview where it was five hours of nonstop grilling. Part of it was, well, here's how it operates in this industry. We like to do these or tests to see how you're going to perform. And I remember walking away and, and thinking, and especially now with all the research and years of work I've had since, thinking what a terrible process it was, what a terrible experience it was, right? And in many ways, it confirmed that I wouldn't belong there. I wouldn't be respected there. I wouldn't feel welcome there. And I was right. Mm, wow. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for telling us about all these strategies. I mean, when I read this part of the book, especially, there were so many things that came up. I was like, wow, I hadn't really thought of that as an action item. And so my call to action for everyone, especially if you are involved in hiring in your organization in any way, is to buy Rachika's book, Inclusion on Purpose, and read pages 117 through 119. There is three pages with a beautiful chart of all the things to be considering around um, job descriptions, candidates, the interview process. Uh, There's a ton we haven't talked about here. You also talk about salary negotiation and making offers and so many things that I think a lot of times just don't come up on the radar screen of a lot of leaders. And so I hope folks will take that as a first step if you're involved in hiring to really think about what you can do to begin to move the needle in your organization. 
Ruchika, I'd, I'd love to ask you one other question. As um, you've been doing, you've written two books now, you have spoken to so many organizations that are doing incredible things in the world. You've advised a lot of organizations on how to get better at this, and you've done a ton of research. Over the last couple of years, um, as, as you've been doing this work, what's something that you've changed your mind on? Mm. Dave, there's, this is this is such a good and such a hard question because there have been a lot of micro things that I've changed my mind on. But I think the the big sort of macro, the one that I think has been impactful for me in my work is recognizing that and that there are people out there who really deeply, truly, care about this in their bones. And I always thought if if you're a person with privilege and power, why would you want to give that up? Why would you not want to be the person who's in charge and the leader? And what I've changed my mind on and what makes me excited and optimistic is I'm meeting a lot more leaders who recognize that with that privilege and power, actually does come a lot of responsibility. I'm quoting Spider-Man here and my son will be very excited. He's five. <laughs> but um and I and and I've changed my mind on the fact that in the past I thought, well, if you have power and privilege, you're never going to want to give that up. And I've now over the years I've been doing this work, I've actually met some really powerful, humble people who recognize that the lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion doesn't just hurt communities who have been underrepresented, but it actually hurts them too. And giving up that power and sharing that power and co-creating a future where we all have power is actually beneficial to everyone. So that's something I've changed my mind on. And I hope that's that gives other people comfort and hope because there are hard days when you do this work. Ruchika Tolshian is the author of Inclusion on Purpose, an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. Ruchika, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much, Dave, for having me. If this conversation with Ruchika was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 301, How to Get the Ideal Team Player with Patrick Lencioni. Pat and I in that conversation talked about his book of the same name and some of the key principles that he looks at and advises other leaders to focus on when in the hiring process. It's a conversation that I continually come back to. There's so many wonderful tactics, principles, mindsets that come out of that conversation and really surfacing the kind of information both you and the candidate needs in order to decide if it's the right fit. Episode 301, a good complement to this conversation. I'd also recommend episode 508, how to be more inclusive with Stephanie Johnson. Uh, Stephanie was very kind to share with us in that episode her research for her book, Inclusify, and specifically what leaders can do to create more inclusion inside their teams and organizations. Of course, it goes well beyond just the recruiting and hiring process. We talked in detail about what leaders can do and some of the first steps, episode 508 for that. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 544, Start Finding Overlooked Talent with Johnny Taylor Jr. Johnny is the president and CEO of SHRM, the Society for Human Resources Management. We talked about some of the ways that organizations can do a better job, and individual leaders, of course, can do a better job, of finding the talent that many organizations and industries tend to overlook. Very important, of course, right now, given uh, everything going on in the world. All of those you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. 
If you haven't already, I'm inviting you to take a moment to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That's going to give you access to an entire suite of benefits inside of the free membership. You'll see all the details at the top of the page at coachingforleaders.com. One of those benefits is to be able to search the entire episode library since 2011 by topic. And one of those key topic areas is recruiting and hiring is a key competency for leaders to continually be thinking about bringing people into the organization that are going to support sustainability for the organization, that are going to create the diversity and inclusion so many of us care about, that are going to help the organization to be successful, and of course, that really do help the organization and leaders to think about succession planning, while so many key principles of recruiting and hiring for all of us many, many conversations over the years around that. You can find that inside the free membership. Just set it up at coachingforleaders.com. Next week, I'm glad to welcome back top executive coach Marshall Goldsmith to the show. He's going to be showing us how we can show up more genuinely for others. Join me for that conversation with Marshall next week. Have a great week, and I'll see you back on Monday. Take care.